Welcome to the Social Lights podcast with Kate Vandervoort, where I interview changemakers and innovators on how they connect with their tribe on social media. Brought to you by Social Mediology. I am here with Sandy Blackburn, who is the founder of Social Outcomes and the author of Holding Up the Sky. And I am so excited to be here with you today, Sandy. Hello. Hi, Kate. Thank you. So Sandy and I have known each other for quite some time and I'm privileged to call her a friend now. But when I first met Sandy, I, and she's heard me say this before, but I had the biggest professional crush on Sandy. I would watch what she did and was involved on the edges of some of the projects that Sandy was involved in. And I was just blown away by Firstly, how your brain works, Sandy, but your ability to look at systems and the way that things are being done and to find a better, more effective, more transformational way of doing things. And so I'm really excited to explore that in a bit more detail today on our podcast. But why don't we start with what is it that lights you up? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I think it relates to what you've just said, actually, because obviously I work in the social impact space, sometimes environmental and cultural as well, but let's call it social impact space. And you can do that, but you can just do the same thing we've always done, run the same programs, look for more funding, you know, just do business as usual. But what lights me up is to think about better ways to do things in that space. And the team joke that my superpower is to be able to see through walls and it's a little bit like what you've just described, is I don't know, my brain must work differently, but people can give me information and I can sort it into a pattern that makes sense of something that we hadn't seen before. And so I love doing that. And whether that turns into a new strategy for an organisation or a way of thinking and measuring impact or a new partnership that people haven't thought of before or whatever it might be, that stuff for me is what gets me out of bed to do the work in the social impact space. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit about your journey before social outcomes. Where have you come from? You've got a really fascinating background. Tell us a bit about that. Well, some people say to me, you've had such an interesting career and it always makes me laugh because the last word I'd apply to my working life is a career because I've just said yes to things. And I think that's a principle that I like to live by is when opportunities come to do interesting things, sometimes we say no because we're afraid or we don't think we can or whatever, particularly as women. And so I've always had the policy of just saying yes to stuff. So I got the opportunity to go straight out of uni to live and work in South Africa for I think it was initially four or five months with a bunch of other Australians. And this was in 1988, so a long time ago. And we were doing some youth work, basically. It was a youth leadership program in South Africa. And I absolutely loved it and ended up staying on there for 15 years. And what I learned was how to do brave, large-scale, whole-system social change work. You know, when you think about the transformation that happened over those 15 years from the beginning of 88 onwards to the end of 2003, it was an enormous change at completely fundamental levels for the country. And so I was shown how to do that and got to be part of that change process and the rebuilding that happened after the apartheid system ended. And then I came back to Australia because my dad was really ill and we didn't know how much longer he had to live. 
So he did live a couple more years, which was wonderful. But I needed to work in Australia so that I could be around for my mum and dad in those last years. So I ended up working in corporate Australia, ultimately at Westpac, and I did almost a decade at Westpac. And what that allowed me to do, the time that I was in South Africa was like doing a master's in social change. And the time that I was in Westpac was like doing an MBA. And so it allowed me to bring together the social and the financial skill sets, which has kind of set me up really well for what social outcomes is. So when I left Westpac, it was because the impact investing market was starting to grow. So how do we think about using finance for social, cultural, environmental purpose? So I co-founded something with a friend of mine, uh, Rosemary Addis, called Impact Investing Australia. And that was designed to set up the market conditions that it would allow that, that market to grow. But what I also knew about myself is that, and I get it from my dad, is that I'm a real entrepreneur in the way that I think and operate. And so working on policy and regulation and things like that and trying to advocate government to establish the things needed wasn't really where my strengths lay. So I then founded Social Outcomes, which is about creating opportunities that might get funded, but most importantly, it's about helping organisations to maximise impact. And so that could be a not-for-profit who wants to find alternative revenue streams and starting a social enterprise or wants to think about outcomes-based contracting for their government contracts, or it could be a corporate, so we've got a corporate client at the moment, who wants to think deeply about how they engage in community and how they can maximise the impact but also measure it and align it to their business model. So it, it could be not-for-profits, it could be government, it could be corporates, but everyone has the same intent. They're really trying to maximise their impact. And so that's what we do at Social Outcomes. So we might research around a particular issue and from that evidence base find a design that's going to work for how a program could be run or an organisation could be built or an enterprise could be created. And sometimes we then go on to raising capital from impact investors or designing a contract with government that's going to make the most of the outcomes and the impact that that organisation is creating. So one of the things that we've talked about between you and I is the shifts that have happened in the not-for-profit sector particularly here in Australia. And I think, you know, we see catastrophic events like the bushfires that will completely change how fundraising happens in this country, particularly for the next little while, given how much has already been given and how that's going to affect other not-for-profits that are potentially not in the bushfire recovery process. So what are the shifts that you're seeing here in Australia? And because I know social outcomes is a really integral part in some of those shifts, but what are those shifts that you're seeing and some of the drivers behind that? We're seeing basically a shift to outcomes. And what that means is in the past, if an organisation talked about what it did, whether it was a corporate for that matter or philanthropic foundation or a not-for-profit organisation, everyone was mostly talking about activity. So we run these workshops and we do these things. So it was more about what they're doing. And at some point, that's just not enough. And so we've had this shift that started probably globally in the last 10 years. And in Australia in the last seven or eight, I think, we've started to see it more strongly. And it's about whether the organisation is a funder or, or it's a stakeholder or the community at large is saying, 
yeah, I get you do this activity, but what happens as a result? So tell me what gets better or, you know, how are people helped by what you're doing? And so we've seen this shift where not-for-profits are starting to talk in that language of impact and outcomes. Government is starting to want to contract for those outcomes rather than contracting for activity. So we're seeing that shift. We're seeing corporates ask for different things from the organisations that they're funding and, and philanthropic organisations as well. So people are required to do it on all sides of the equations much more than they have in the past. And as we've got into that shift, which is massive when you really give it some thought, because for an organisation that's talked to all of its stakeholders and funders only about activity, and we're now saying, talk to us about outcomes, and they may well say, I have no idea what outcomes we create because we measure activities because that's what we get paid on. If you've got a government contract, you had to equip that against the actions that you take. So if it's a large organisation, all of their systems are designed to capture the activity and nothing else. And then when you say, okay, what are your outcomes? After you've perhaps worked out what you think they might be, then how do you measure them? And then you get into the question of, well, how do you know those are the outcomes you've created or is that just what you hope happens? And so it's been this tectonic shift for all parties to say, well, how do we know and what does that mean? And if now with government we start to have contracts that pay us when we get the outcomes, either as a performance bonus or they don't pay us at all unless we get the outcomes, how do we know we're going to be able to deliver against this? Or if the public is asking us for these kind of outcomes and they'll only fund us and give, you know, their dollar to us if we can demonstrate we can do this how do we know so there's a whole how do you, there's two pieces to it how do you manage for that impact to be created and then how do you measure the impact and how you know how do you know if you're doing the right thing and so there's sprung up a whole field of work of which we're obviously part as you described about evidence-based design of impactful programs and approaches but also then managing and measuring the impact that an organisation is creating and in some circumstances then going to design contracts of which social impact bonds and things like that are part. And we're starting to see a lot more of those. I actually counted them up the other day. We've got 14 that I'm aware of in Australia at the moment, these social impact bonds, and we've got another two or three that are being negotiated. But there's over 140, I think, now around the world of these contracts where you only get paid if you create the outcomes. And they're usually, you know, $10 million worth of outcomes that are on the table, so it's no small potatoes. So Can you give us some, some real-life examples of those social impact bonds so that people really yeah. understand how that works? So you and I are here in Queensland, in Brisbane, and we're doing one in Queensland that we designed with Churches of Christ Care and the state government wanted to see some really positive outcomes for young people as they exit care. And the ones they were particularly interested in were around homelessness because the, the information that was out there was that a lot of the young people who are coming to homelessness services have a history of being in out-of-home care. So there wasn't a lot of data on what was happening, but that much we knew. So... The bond, and it's a, what is it in total, $7,500 sorry, $7 million bond that the Queensland government has a contract with Churches of Christ Care, is to deliver outcomes for 300 young people over the next six and a half years as they exit care. So there's a group of young people exiting care every year when they 
get of a certain age, usually between 16 and 18, and they then get onboarded onto the program, referred by government or other agencies. And the job of Churches of Christ Care is to support them for two and a half, three and a half years, whilst they build their resilience so that they won't be homeless. And that's done through building a network of people around them who care about them and can be there for them when things go a crop, a crop of which they will for any one of us. But you've got a support network around you and also finding their way back to education, be that school or TAFE or uni, and also helping them find work. That could be volunteer work. That could be part-time work. Um, but getting them back into school, back into work or into work for the first time, and also supporting them if they're new parents, which 27% of young people exiting care are parents, which is very high because they're probably 17 years old, but also their mental health is really damaged by the trauma that they've suffered up until that point. So supporting them with their mental health issues over the time of that program. And if those outcomes are achieved for those 300 young people, then the state will pay back the investment of seven and a half million plus some money on top as a performance bonus. Now, Churches of Christ Care could have said, well, we'll pay for the cost of the program and then that performance bonus will come back to us. But that's a lot of risk for an organisation. So what they've done is to go to the market and issue a bond and say, we're going to invest a portion of the amount required, but we would like other investors to come and join us and we will share the returns that are generated. So that's what they did. And there were 11, I think, no more, 16 investors that came forward and said, we'd love to be part of that with you. The largest amount of the money that came to pay for the program actually came from institutional investors. So large corporates and the like, um, superannuation institutions. And those, that's a new thing. When we did the first social impact bond, there were two that got issued in 2013, I think it was. So I was working on the Benevolent Society one. The majority of entities that invested in that $10 million bond were actually philanthropic foundations. And there were a couple of institutional investors. So Westpac itself and the Commonwealth Bank. But now that's flipped on its head because institutional investors are saying, well, we would really like to do something valuable in the community and we have money to invest. So we're going to invest in these bonds to help young people have a better future as they exit care. So it's become a very interesting thing where you're seeing these large corporate players really looking to utilise their capital in much better ways than investing in the share market or whatever it might be. And it just seems like so much more of a better way to do it from all angles. You know, the organisation is getting a, a lot more robust support than potentially philanthropic dollars that may dry up at any point in time. Absolutely. And, and investors who are actually getting a return on their investment with a social outcome, that's yes. clearly a win-win. And for the yes. government, that's a really clever way of doing it because they're not just pouring money into services where they don't know what the outcome is. They're Absolutely. paying on forms. They'll only pay when it's How do they? What happens if the outcomes are achieved for 200 of those people in care and not 300? What happens in terms of how that's acquitted at the end? There's a baseline in this particular bond, um, this Queensland one, that has to be achieved. So it needs to be over 20% improvement. Uh -huh. You're kind of counting for each person. So if you can do better than 20% of the young people achieving those outcomes, then the state will pay. And the higher that number, the percentage number, the more the state will pay. 
And how do they determine that initial investment amount? Is that what they were paying for services prior to? No, the provider, in this case Churches of Christ Care, they work out what budget they need to deliver the outcomes that the state has requested. And there's a bit extra in there for measurement, for engagement with the investors and for verification of those outcomes. So that adds a little bit to the contract value, if you like. But the vast majority of the money required is actually detailed by the provider to say this is everything we need for the next six and a half years to deliver these outcomes. The state goes through that with a fine-tooth comb and says, yep, happy with that. You agree on what the outcomes are, how you'll measure them, and then you go to investors and say, you're interested? They say yes, and away we go. But the nice thing about these contracts is often government contracting can just be for a year at a time, maybe two years if you're lucky, and then they get reviewed and you might be employing staff who are only employed because they're on this contract. And if that contract doesn't get renewed, then they're gone. So often in the sector, you've got people who only have one-year contracts. And that's really difficult to retain good staff. Also, as you can imagine, for those staff, not knowing if they're going to have a job next year. And what these bonds do is allow you to employ a large number of people for six and a half years. And so you can invest in their development. And the more you develop them and the more you develop the quality of the program, the better the outcomes and the more of a, the higher the return that get, gets paid at the other end. But you've also got, in this instance, six and a half years of really detailed data that's getting analysed on a regular basis. So we're learning so much more about how to work with young people, but also what's likely to happen to them. So we're learning about a cohort that we know next to nothing about. There's very little research in Australia on young people once they've exited care. I'm sure you or I would do the same, but they don't particularly want to be found and interviewed. They've had enough of institutions, so they tend to go to the wind and lay low. And so this allows us to engage with 300 young people over that period and really understand what it is they need, how they respond to the support they're getting, and then change the program as needs be, which Churches of Christ have already done, and it's only two and a half years in but they've already made these adjustments based on the feedback they're getting from young people about what's really important to them in achieving that increase in resilience. So it's a very exciting way to work for the sector. What we get is this fantastic wealth of information and insights, and also the state and the investors know for sure, because it all gets verified by a third party, usually an accounting firm, that those outcomes are actually achieved. It just makes sense on every level and to not be at the mercy of election cycles with yes. short-term yes. uh, programmatic goals, which I think we've seen so much of in the past, that, you know, to give that assurance to the organisations and the staff and even the recipients, because, you know, how many times have we seen amazing programs cut due to funding and the recipients are the, the end, Absolutely. you know, they're the ones that suffer in the end. So. Yeah. Now, this kind of instrument is the most complex version of this kind of contracting. And you have, at the simpler end, there's something called payment by outcome. So you could say, we'll deliver this program and we'll put 10 or 20% of that at risk. And then if we can achieve the outcomes, then there'll be a performance bonus for the organisation. So you don't need to do a bond and you don't need investors, but you do need the organisation to say, we're going to back ourselves to create these outcomes and we'll put 10% at risk and then the state um, may well agree to then give the performance bonus. So it's just a slight variation, but you have to do the same data collection and so on. So the, the robustness is there, but the contracting is much, much simpler 
than doing a big complex bond. So we're now starting to see those payment by outcome simple contracts coming into play as well, which is really exciting because that's far more attainable for most organisations in the sector. I was going to ask that question is this sounds like a really complex structure. So how does that, how is that going to impact the future of um, funding in the, yeah. in the not-for-profit sector? So great that it is filtering through. I think we're just going to see more and more contracts that are actually outcomes based. And so, as I said before, we've got a lot of activity based funding at the moment that the step in between is what's called outputs. And so it's where rather than saying we ran 10 workshops, you could say we ran 10 workshops and this is what people thought about it or this is what happened immediately thereafter. But it's quite short term. So that's more of an output. But an outcome is when something changes in the life of the person that you've run the program for or you've provided the support to. So instead of monitoring the organisation that's delivering a service, you start monitoring the beneficiary to say what's changed in their lives. And you can do that with government data. You don't have to bug them and ask them a whole range of things. You can just look at the circumstances in a particular geography and saying, well, less people are going to hospital now or less people are using homelessness services or less people are doing X, Y, Z. But the focus is on a better life for the beneficiaries rather than actions taken by the provider. So that's a really healthy shift, I think, for the sector. Painful, but healthy. And are there ways for individuals to start, you know, who might not be a high net worth individual that can invest a million dollars in a social impact bond, but for your average everyday person who might traditionally just donate, put money in a bucket, donate to a bushfire appeal, are there ways for mum and dad um, or individual investors to get involved? I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is what happens with the money? And the, the way we've historically answered that question is to look at how much of it is being spent on admin. And those who work in the sector, including the, our regulator, would say that that's a, a red herring. Because if an organisation isn't spending any money on getting better at what they do, I don't want to give money to them. I need people to be spending money on admin, which means paying people and paying for their development and paying for better process and paying for measurement of outcomes. That's important. So the right question to ask is what's happening with this money? So what's happening as a result? What's changing for people who are in bushfire affected areas or whatever historically, if an organisation has sponsored say, or supported the, um, the Black, Sunday fire, Black Saturday fires, for example, what changed for people on the ground with that organisation? And if the organisation can't articulate it, put your money somewhere else. So I would only be giving to money to organisations who can tell me what's changed for the people they were supporting. And hopefully in time, that's where money will gravitate towards in terms of mum and dad making donations. We'll donate towards people who are clearly measuring the outcomes and can show us what they're able to achieve. And then if they spend 30% of what I give them to make that happen, I'm fine with that because what matters is the outcomes not so much how much they spend in you know, getting there. Because spending too little is cutting off your nose to spite your face and you're going to have an organisation that's not sustainable and that's a bad idea. And the other thing I'd say that's been in the press a lot is people are saying, well, why isn't the money all going to where it should now, all of it now? And the issue around that is it goes back to the evidence base. And so any program that's worth its salt should research what works. 
And when you look at the evidence base around managing um, disasters, what we know is that if you spend it all in the first six months, it's another disaster because people need support for at least two years. So if you're an organisation that's putting money in, you've got to drip feed it in over at least a two-year period. And if you spend it all up front, you're not going to be there when people need you in two years' time when it's not so sexy and no one is around. So the organisations that do it well, they'll put a chunk of money in up front, but they'll hold some of it back so they can continue to support those communities with some volume of investment over that two-year period. So that kind of message which relates to the evidence base of what we know works hasn't really been getting out there as much as it should. And if we're doing good evidence-based design, those should be the kind of questions we're asking is what works and what's changing as a result. Fantastic. They're such obvious and yet haven't been obvious for so long. So it's, um, it's great to see these shifts happening and, and to hear more about how you're participating in that shift. Um, so we often talk about in this podcast the role of technology and I'm just interested in your thoughts and reflections on the role that technology plays in social outcomes and, and some of the trends that you might be seeing around technology's role in that. I've been thinking about this a lot to do with community resilience, obviously because of the bushfires and the floods over the summer. So we've done a lot of research recently, as you might be surprised to hear, on what creates resilience in communities. Um, but what we're starting to see is the definition of community. You might say, you know, a community um, like Mogo or something like that has a bushfire plan together. And that will definitely increase their resilience because everyone will know what to do and where to go and who to go to for help and so on. But then you have another layer that technology has delivered to these communities during the fires and before, but we've seen it just because it's fresh now and reflecting on it. Other communities forming to support a geographical community. So we've seen social media delivering campaigns like um, Empty Esky and like the tradies who are helping and so on. So it's, what it's done is it's increased the boundaries of that resilient community, I think. So it's created a larger community of resilience that isn't just the geography of, you know, um, eastern Victoria or south coast of, of New South Wales, but it's saying there's a larger community at play that we can tap into for support and we know what that support is and how we can access it and so on. It's going to help us get through the next little while. And something that I saw an article a couple of days ago talking about the next wave we're going to expect in the bushfire, you know, process will actually be an increase in domestic violence. And one of the things that we saw when we were researching the evidence base around this is there's always a spike because there's a lot of stress um, on men and they feel powerless. And so that plays out in ways that uh, turn it inwards. And so we can expect an increase in domestic violence to be coming through in the next few months. So we've, we've helped with um, small business, we've helped with rebuild with tradies, you know, we've helped with um, a whole range of things, but we need to think about how we're going to use social media to deal with the next wave that will come through, which is going to be this domestic violence. So there's both benefits but also challenges with how technology can help us go through what we know will happen um, to help communities be more resilient. Mm, fascinating. Because I think, you know, there's the obvious role of education and awareness and support that can come out of social media 
Absolutely. And then the shadow side of that, which is the isolation and the feeling very separate and different if your circumstances are not the same as what you're seeing unfold on social media. Yeah. So it will be really interesting. I often find that in the darkest times, like has been happening in the last couple of months here in Australia, the innovation and the new ways of doing things always emerge and social media is often the precursor to that. You see that unfolding on social media quite early. So it will be interesting to see what else emerges out of this. And, you know, with people like yourself who are, or organisations like yours who are really looking at the evidence base behind it because we can make assumptions and make plans based on what we think is unfolding, but to actually look at the evidence behind that is, yeah. is obviously critical. We've been looking at disasters in different countries to see what emerges as a result. So we were looking at the floods in New Orleans as well as obviously other fires in, uh, and floods in Australia. Um, but we've been looking at disaster communities, if you like, around the world and what's happened if um, there hasn't been support. So if government hasn't provided support, like in New Orleans, what's kind of risen up from the ashes that's community-driven? and where support has been provided, what has that meant, and so on. So there's a lot to be learnt from what's gone before that will help us prepare for what we know is coming next now. You know, this new normal has been talked about. It's no longer unprecedented. We have to learn how to cope better. So there's a lot of interest in thinking through what this looks like, but we have to do it from an evidence-based point of view. And slight change of tact, but one of the things I'm really interested in seeing, you know, the find a bed and fill an esky and all yeah. of these campaigns that emerge and inevitably a lot of them end up setting up an organisation, you know, then we're replicating all of the administration that needs to happen yes. to support that. Yes. And often, um, and I'd be interested whether you've, you know, what you've seen in terms of projects, programs, whole organisations that are created out of disasters, what's the sustainability yeah. around those? And, and how does... Yeah, it's pretty poor because whether the disaster is bushfire or the loss of a loved one, um, people's response is we want to do something, which is fantastic. And social media gives them a way to harness that and then reach other people who also want to do something. Um, but our desire to start new organisations always worries me a bit because I know what it takes to run a good organisation and it takes decades to, you know, really get it into its stride and so on. And so I would love to see more people thinking, I want to do this thing, so, you know, respond, MTSK, whatever it might be. But how can I find an organisation that I can latch on to that's already in existence? Because there's a real... We've seen it a lot in the sector where particularly young people start new things. They perhaps are doing an innovative thing that no one's done before or perhaps they just aren't aware that someone else has done it before and they get up and try and do it on their own and we support them and they get media and, it, you know, it takes this life of its own. But often there are existing organisations that they could have worked with and that's by far the better outcome to say how do we work with an organisation that we have good shared values with and find them. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that we do kind of on the side really is to help organisations find other organisations they could partner with, with that values alignment, with a shared purpose and so on, because it's so much easier than starting from scratch. And while it feels good in the first six to 12 months because you're really hurting and it's a way of processing your own trauma, I think, um, but 
what's best for the sector, what's best for um, organisations and for beneficiaries is actually to partner up because all that back office stuff and all the system stuff and the compliance and all of that's already in place in an existing organisation. And if you can find the right one, then your energy and effort will go 10 times as far as it would have otherwise because if you set up your own organisation, 90% of your energy goes into running that organisation, which isn't why you wanted to do it in the first place. You and I have talked about this a lot over the years, but I, you know, we see particularly in social media, you know, just to give it a social media analogy, you've got your foundation content that is day-to-day that continues on and then there are campaigns that need to emerge around particular causes, topics, issues. Um, And so I think the more that we can look at these kind of circumstances and have those be a campaign that operates for the life cycle that is needed as opposed to we've set up an organisation and now we have to sustain it and figure out how to do yeah. that long term. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to close out that life cycle of a campaign and to say that's fulfilled its purpose, it's met the outcomes that it was set up to achieve and now we can shift those resources and that energy into whatever that, that next campaign yeah. is as opposed and to ongoing if that campaign needs to be reinvigorated at one point, you know, you've got it parked, Mm. but you don't have to manage it for the two years in between. And it's not just your time. You've also got to have a board and you've got to report to the ACNC and you've got to do all these things. And there's a lot of people whose time and effort get sucked into that organisation. And they initially did it because they care about the cause, but they end up just doing a lot of governance and a lot of management and not much about the cause. So if you can... um, you know, run and pause and resurrect and so on campaigns and initiatives that sit inside organisations which are large enough to uh, support them and warehouse them, it's a much more nimble and effective and impactful way to get to the outcomes that you want. And technology gives us unprecedented um, opportunity to do that, to be flexible and adaptive and to be nimble, to set up very quickly, but equally to call it when it needs to be called and to pack that back down. But Absolutely. knowing that, you know, the the structure exists for as soon as you need to activate that again. Yes. And so we always... One plea, that would be the thing I would beg people to do, is to just think of it like a campaign, think of it like a program and find a partner rather than starting from scratch. I was just going to say, we always finish our podcast with if there's somebody out there who is thinking about, they've got the next best idea. You know, I love my brother dearly. I probably on a monthly basis get the phone call from my brother that says, Kate, Kate, I've got it. I've thought of this amazing business. I'm like, tell me about it. He goes, well, it's this app and it does this and it does that. And I love his enthusiasm. But for those innovators and change makers to be who are sitting out there listening to this podcast, what is your advice um, or what would you say to them as they're in that pondering process? I would say two things. So one is obviously look to see who else is doing something similar and go and have a conversation. So finding a partner is a much better idea than going it alone or trying to pull in other people to help you. But find an organisation that's playing in the same space because People always come to me and say, no one else is doing this. And I've been around in the sector for a long time and I can usually name half a dozen off the top of my head without doing a Google search. So find your family, you know, find your people, 
go and find other people to work with. It'll be so much easier and more fulfilling to do it that way. And secondly, on a personal level, I'd say watch your boundaries because it's really easy to allow your, um, your passion and your commitment for creating a better world to flood over into every part of your life so that you have no boundaries anymore and you'll burn out. So those of us who really love doing this kind of work have to work really hard on having boundaries and learning how to say no when appropriate. Because the more you put it out there that you want to do something to make the world better, the more you're going to have people coming and asking you for things. And you can't keep saying yes and yes and yes and yes. So learning when is the right time and why it's the right time to say no or yes is the skill you need as a person in order to survive this work because otherwise I guarantee you, you will burn out because I've burnt out probably four times in my career and it's not fun and you're not helping anyone when it happens. And I teach my son these boundaries. He's a paramedic and it would be very easy for him to get burnt out and we talk about boundaries almost on a weekly basis and how we're both managing our boundaries to make sure we're, you know, we've got the marathon thing happening. So for any young budding entrepreneur or someone that wants to start a charity or whatever, all the more mature ones, family, all the more mature ones, whoever it might be, find your family and watch your boundaries. Fantastic. Such wonderful pearls of wisdom from, I can assure you, somebody who is incredibly experienced in this space and has pretty much seen it all when it comes to the starting up of and sustainability of organisations. So thank you so much, Sandy, for your time today. I always find it fascinating and don't sleep for three days afterwards whenever <laughs> I speak with you. Um, but thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Kate. Thank you for joining us on the Social Lights podcast produced by Social Mediology. You can connect with us on Facebook at Social Lights Podcast and you can find today's show notes and more episodes at socialmediology.com.au forward slash social lights. Please subscribe in your favourite podcast platform to receive future episodes and share with your tribe to inspire others to action.